Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. And on today's program, we're very fortunate to have both Kravchenko with us to look at the bigger picture of Putin's regime in Russia. What is driving Putin's policies? What is at stake in the dangerously escalating tensions between Russia and Ukraine? And are Putin's actions designed to increase domestic political support? Or are they aimed at negotiating with the United States to keep NATO at bay? And if so, is this a cynical geopolitical gamble with the West? Or is it more to distract his own population from their grievances around growing inequality and the lack of democratic rights? With 100,000 or more Russian troops amassing on the border, with Ukraine, the use of troops and the use of Russian troops recently to aid in crushing dissent in Kazakhstan and before that in cahoots with Lukashenko over the migrant crisis in Belarus and on the Polish border. We're going to ask Bogdan what he thinks this dangerous saber rattling means. Bogdan Kravchenko, welcome to Jacobin Radio. And I wanted to just properly introduce you. Bogdan Kravchenko is dean of the Graduate School of Development and former director general of the University of Central Asia. That's a regional university with campuses in Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, and Tajikistan, and a program in Afghanistan. And he travels between them, but we're speaking today in Bishkek. Kyrgyzstan, far from here. And until 1991, Bogdan was a professor and then a director at the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. And then in 1991, he left Canada for Ukraine, where he became director of policy studies at the Council of Advisors to the Parliament and was later founder and director of what became the Academy of Public Administration, Office of the President of the Ukraine, and then he was appointed Vice Rector for Academic Development and the Director at the Center for the Study of Administration Reform. He's also the author of many articles and books, including Social Change and National Consciousness in 20th Century Ukraine. Um, he edited Ukraine after Shales and Famine in Ukraine and many others. And Bogdan and I have worked for many years together on the journal Critique that came out of the Institute of Soviet and East European Studies at the University of Glasgow, where we both studied. So with all of that, Bogdan, welcome to the show. Thank you. I Thank hope you. I got it right. Yes, yes, yes. I don't recognize myself, actually. <laughs> well, let's get down to it, because there's an awful lot I wanted to ask you about. But I think what we should start with is that great big picture that you and I mentioned on the phone last week in trying to put this program together. And that is, what is Putin doing? What does he represent? How do you characterize his regime? And I'll just throw out a couple of adjectives first, and then you can take it from there. He's been described as gangster regime, militarist, nationalist, totalitarian, neo-Stalinist, But we know that his regime has conducted murderous wars in Chechnya, jailed or killed journalists, locked up dissidents in Russia, banned political parties, poisoned or killed opponents abroad. And he maneuvered himself into being leader for life and rigged elections even when that he would have won anyway. And he pushed and pushes homophobic, ultranationalist, racist, and anti-democratic politics. So with those adjectives, let's hear from you on how you look at his regime. Well, I think it's fairly straightforward in the sense that what he has done is something quite new in the region, and that is a very strong dictatorship. Lukashenko, of course, had tried to do that and was met with all of that opposition. 
what Putin has done is to establish a dictatorship, but it is based on a bigger group that has a very big stake in the system as it is. And that system is one where the state controls the economy, the state makes sure that there is nobody to challenge them. So they have shut down civil society space. I think the fact that Memorial has been shut down and one of the people from Memorial has been sentenced to prison for 15 years speaks volumes about a person who attacks Memorial that was all about researching the horrible things that happened during Stalin's regimes and the people who died in the gulags. But the point about Putin is that he has really no ideology. He has really no plan. He offers no vision to society other than himself and his cronies in power. And the people that he put into power were people that were always associated with him, and they represent what in Russian is called the Siloviki. These are people that came out with him from the KGB and other similar structures and his friends and have been put in charge of very, very big companies. He has successfully demolished any large companies, and we know the story with Podarkovsky, that an independent business that eventually can serve as an independent economic base that could challenge his political power. He is uncompromising in the pursuit of his opponents, and he doesn't really care. So tens of thousands of young people have been incarcerated for demonstrations. Actually, in some cases, all you do, you can get arrested by simply standing on the street. One guy was arrested by standing in the street with an empty piece of paper, and that was enough. And this is very, very sad, because what he has done is, especially for the young people, he has robbed them of a future. There is no organizing idea, of meaningful organizing idea, other than we have to remain in power at all costs and do whatever it takes. So within that context, obviously Ukraine is a colossal irritant. When he invaded Crimea, that was popular with Russia, and that was some sort of goal that he could achieve. What are the goals that he could achieve now? Economic growth, that's not happening. Improving the living standards of the population, they've declined 12 years in a row. And then you have Ukraine, where you have the proxy war that goes on in Donetsk. He had much bigger plans for Ukraine. Don't forget that this is a guy that feels deep nostalgia for the USSR. The Duma is supposed to pass a resolution saying that the collapse of the USSR is the biggest geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century. And this is a completely absurd point of view, because that's the only thing that seems to be left for him. But he will not be able to reconfigure the USSR, although he would like very much. Let me just ask you a few questions before you move on from there, just more about Putin, because you've talked about the way that you know, as we know, he seized back control of uh, much of the economy and especially the energy sector, which is huge. And for the longest time, Russia was living on gas and oil revenues. Uh, but then there was development 
And living standards did go up, especially, you know, I think in the beginning, Putin was seen as the anti-Yeltsin and Yeltsin was such a disaster economically that Putin was seen as a savior and he was popular. But then, as we saw, and I, I was going to ask you, he, he once again established controls over people's movement and over their basic democratic rights that had been gained, however small they were. And even when there were protests, say in 2012, and maybe even with Pussy Riot and a couple of other issues, which there have been, they seem to have not anything more than a fly that he could swat. But now you mentioned that he also has shut down Memorial. And that, was, that had huge symbolic significance as a sort of moving away from Stalinism and exploring what Stalinism represented. And so it just seems like I'd love to get your sense of how he manages to do this without provoking wider, you know, protest. Well, there have been protests. I mean, don't, don't remember that last year, way in the Far East, people demonstrated for a very, very long time. And they moved from economic demands, ultimately to demands of put, get Putin out. Well, the way he controls it is very straightforward. He has a huge army of militia, secret police, a massive repressive apparatus, and he is very unrelenting in clamping down. He doesn't care. And if you don't care and you're going to be clamping down as hard as you can, I mean, it's a very big disincentive to go and demonstrate because the last time that people went to demonstrate, they ended up in prison for a number of years. They were kicked out of universities. They lost their jobs. He has established very total control, except for certain things on Internet. The fact that there are tens of thousands of young people that are leaving the brains of the country doesn't bother him because that system doesn't need people. So in reestablishing, as you said, a kind of the grandeur, I guess, of the Soviet Union, for which he has shown a lot of nostalgia, but doing it minus that economic system. So, you know, others earlier said that he's kind of Pinochet type Stalinist. <laughs> I don't know if that if that characterizes it, but with control. You can, you can call him sort of a Pinochet, type, whatever. But the fact is that the economic situation, as you said, was better. There was an increase in the price of oil, and he was able to distribute some goodies. But you cannot have an economy that exists only on rents from oil, from hydrocarbons. Right. The economy has to diversify. And the rents from hydrocarbons are not exactly shared by the population. They are exported in huge capital flight. So while all of this wealth is there, it ends up in British banks and real estate in London. And this is like, this is a very unusual situation when the people get wealthy and they move the money out of the country. And that means that there's not enough economic development. Look, the economy has not diversified. The health services have not been modernized. The regional inequalities are terrible. So he can preside, he can clap down on people, but he's not eternal. 
you know, even if he says he is. But so let me ask you then, Bogdan, because you were beginning to talk about Ukraine and mentioned earlier the crisis on the border of uh, Belarus and Poland, where he helped Lukashenko. It didn't do much. And, you know, a lot of people are asking, what is behind his putting troops on Ukrainian border? Is it saber rattling? Is it an attempt to be a message to the other states of the so-called near abroad that they had better retreat and not do what we saw in Kazakhstan last week? Or is it more about trying to push the U.S. into agreeing, you know, on a treaty, let's say, that Ukraine will never join NATO? Where are Ukrainians and all of this? I'd like to, you know, sort of move into what that level of what you think is happening. Look, I think there are quite there are a number of factors there, and you know, I, I live in Kyrgyzstan and I don't live in Ukraine, so I don't follow these things as uh, on on a daily basis as somebody would if they lived in Kiev. But I think there are several factors over here. I think one is that it puts enormous pressure on Ukrainian society. He is extremely upset by the fact that next door to him is a society that is quite democratic, that has a vision of its future, which is European Union. There is light at the end of the tunnel that has a very free open press and has a pretty competitive political environment. He doesn't like the fact that his proxies, like Medvedchuk and others, that they have been clamped down. So the troops are there in part to intervene inside the domestic political affairs by saying, look, you're going after the people who have been my agents in Ukraine. And if you aren't nice to them, we're going to ramp up the tension on the border And I cannot have a discussion with Zelensky or, God forbid, Poroshenko. I used to be, Medvedchuk was the guy who who was the interlocutor and quite a number of others. We want these people back in power so that with their pro-Russian stance and this sort of thing. So this is an attempt to force internal Ukrainian politics. This is also, I think, an attempt to tell the West that your continuing support for Ukraine, you're sending them droves and armaments, and the future of Ukraine in Europe is looking better and better because the economy has diversified, Ukraine exports to the world. This has to stop. This is my backyard. Now, having run out of things to do since he clamped down on anything else, next came the Ukrainian agenda, And he's really had a fixation about it. And by the way, Russian television is fixated. They spend more news on Ukraine than just about every other topic. You mention the word Ukraine and they begin to quake. It is a huge irritant. This whole idea, look, putting on the troops is just one of the things that he has done in terms of dirty tricks. He tried to influence Western politics. He thinks liberalism is for is sick. The democratic values are for for weak people. He likes to build an illiberal democracy, as he calls it. And all of these attempts have not gone very well. 
the financing of ultra-nationalist crazies in Western Europe, the trying to influence the American election. I mean, you name it, and he's already tried it. So this is the next thing that he wants to do. And his demands to the West are simply ridiculous, which is roll back NATO to the borders of the USSR as they used to be, uh, and maybe from the uh, former Warsaw Pact uh, borders as well. I mean, this is absurd to imagine that Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, that are members of NATO, Poland as members of the NATO, are going to say, well, of course, you know, we're not going to uh, join, we are going to withdraw from our NATO ship. It is not to Putin to decide what these countries want. The fact, of course, is that it's not that Ukraine is going to join NATO soon, because that's going to take some time. But sometimes his policies actually have the reverse effect, and some of his mistakes are very positive for Ukraine. He managed to unite the Europe and the United States together on one very big policy issue, and that is stop Putin. Nobody else could have done this. He managed to do this. Nobody is going to negotiate that. Nobody wants to be able to, nobody wants to be seen to tell Ukraine and the Ukrainian people that we will do a new uh, Yalta agreement and divide up Europe. Russia gets their bit, we get our bit. That kind of thing is out. So he likes to be the spoiler. The tensions are horrible, but to imagine that he is going to have an army that is going to invade Ukraine and have a continental old-style war in 2022 or 2023 is mind-boggling to imagine. This is really a key point. And you, you mentioned that there's no other news now on Russian television except about Ukraine. And you could say almost the same thing here. Now it's the Biden administration's talks, which, which didn't really go anywhere. The assurances here that Ukrainian membership in NATO is not on the agenda. And so the question then becomes, you know, is Putin doing this in order to rally support or rally the nation around his regime? Does he feel the need to do that? You said he probably doesn't, but did that after the annexation of Crimea in 2014. And then on the other side, like, what do you think the gamble is? Because the U.S. certainly is not going to want to go to war, but they could push whether or not this I'd like to ask you if this would mean very much for Putin. Far more draconian and punishing sanctions, including some say cutting you know, Russia out of the swift uh, network of global banking, which, you know, would definitely cause some would be crippling economic measures. So what is he trying to do? Do you see it as as more about rallying support at home for his policy or or what? Well, I think one of the things to, to be understood is that Russia is not an economic power. It is not an attractive proposition. People do not flee to go live in Russia. It's the other way. And Putin wants to have an important role in the world. And the way in which he can do it is by being a spoiler. And he's done this in Syria. He does it anywhere where it is possible to do. You now have Russian mercenaries in Africa and this sort of thing. So there's a very long history of this. 
And it may be Ukraine today. Tomorrow, it will probably be something else. It is Ukraine today. And for anybody to say that membership in NATO is not on the cards for Ukraine, that's not news. Everybody knows that it's not on the cards for Ukraine. But what nobody can say is that that will be never, because it depends on how well Ukraine does in its reforms and how well the uh, the economy performs. This was, of course, the biggest issue, as you probably remember, George Kennan wrote that famous op-ed in The New York Times in 1998 and said the expansion of NATO was the single worst uh, foreign policy blunder for the U.S. in the last half century. And that included a lot of blunders. So it was pretty extraordinary that he said that because it would push Russia into a corner instead of trying, as he thought, to extend a hand. What do you think? Well, that was an option that was there with Yeltsin. And don't forget that they, uh, the Russians were invited to the council, uh, the NATO council. There was even talk about a possible eventual membership of Russia in a reconfigured European Union. There was that European choice available, but that was stopped. And it was primarily stopped by domestic forces there. Is this thing popular in Russia? I don't think so at all. Because the consequences would be simply horrific. One of the things that I read today was an article, I think, by Vladimir Ushchenko about what do Ukrainians want? And it was quite interesting because it sort of validates what you were saying, that Ukraine is diversified politically And that there's no consensus about whether Ukrainians themselves want to join NATO. Some do, some don't. But nobody's asking them. (laughs) That's the real issue. No, look, there are two things in terms of Ukrainian public opinion. What is absolutely clear is European choice. And that is a huge consensus across the country. Don't forget Ukraine has benefited from it has a Ukrainians can visit, they have rights, the Schengen rights. The one million Ukrainians that work in Poland, Ukrainians live in Portugal, Ukrainians live in Italy and all over, all over the world. That European choice is very, very clear. The question of NATO, there isn't a national consensus for several reasons. One is that it is risky. Secondly, it's very difficult to achieve. But there is a significant component of the population that wants it. And at one point, the majority of the people said, "Okay, I mean, thank you very much, Putin. And this is the way you're going to do it. The only guarantee that ever we can have of our security is going to be membership in NATO. But it is not on the cards now. I think what he's trying to do is change the domestic politics of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And he thinks that, and there are going to be a lot of actions that have been undertaken in the past, and they will continue to undertake that action to interfere in Ukraine's domestic affairs. His big problem is that a lot of the instruments of interfering in domestic affairs have been taken away from him. The very big pro-Russian channels have been banned. People that were overtly putting stooges have been removed. And this is a source of great irritation. 
What about, on the other hand, you haven't really said if you think that Putin would actually go to war or try to invade or annex Ukraine. Most people think that's off the cards, that that would actually trigger some form of larger war, which would be unacceptable today. But the other side of it would be it would also provoke a refugee crisis. You know, I think uh, there was one poll that said 8% of Ukrainians would flee the country if that happened. And that would mean I don't think they'd be going to Russia. They'd be going to uh, what Romania. Um, they would go to Poland. They would go to Slovakia. would go wherever they could. But it would be incredibly destabilizing for Europe. And the question I, I guess I was going to ask is, do you have any sense if this is just a geopolitical gamble of Putin's to try to get the U.S. off its back in terms of NATO expansion? Or is it, again, something that the elite in Russia are pushing for in order to galvanize, I don't know, support maybe thinking that there was an uptick after the annexation of Crimea uh, uh, in support? And I really, I, I don't know. But the other side of it, when you mentioned Donetsk and the war in the eastern part of Ukraine, how much does that affect Ukrainians' attitudes toward what Russia is doing? In other words, how ground down were they by that conflict? Well, uh, the the, conf the conflict in Ukraine, don't forget that Russia did invade Ukraine and that there were Russian troops there. And it was largely a volunteer army that stopped them in their tracks. And that you can say that the fact that the territory of Ukraine is occupied is a defeat it is actually, in many respects, a victory because the plans were much grander to capture all of southern Ukraine and to create a, a new structure which would be reminiscent of little Russia of the Tsarist period. That was stopped. Now, the Ukrainian army is not a pushover. Of course, they may lose in the long run, but to occupy Ukraine and to imagine that that occupation is going to work is really, I think, even they understand that this would be catastrophic because one of the things that the Ukrainians would do is they would fight. And one of the things that the Russians would question themselves is why do we have black boxes coming in for what purpose? So that worked in Crimea because that was like a walkover. But it's not going to work particularly here. And uh, I don't think that they seriously, I don't think they seriously think that, that that is on the cards. And even apparently in their military preparations, they don't have even the kind of infrastructure that you wouldn't have to put into place if you were going to have a high casualty war. The fact that you could ramp up conflicts in the occupied areas, the fact that you could send in goons. Uh, to create have more havoc than that place, poor place already has, that's possible. That's on the cards. Sometimes, you know, you begin to think that Put there is a grand plan in Putin's head. He very nostalgic, very nostalgic about the Soviet Union. But it, it, the, the Soviet Union can only be reconstructed if Russia becomes a place that is attractive. So if Russia became democratic, prosperous, then somebody would say, well, okay, why don't we have closer relations? And, you know, you have a big market, we're very similar languages and this sort of thing. What 
Putin's policies have done is to push Ukrainians very far away from Russia. And the younger generation really doesn't care about Russia. They don't watch Russian television. They have no orientation towards Russia. And that's been a tectonic change in Ukrainian society. And that's a very, very tough society. When the conflict happened the last time, 65% of Ukrainians were involved in volunteerism, sending just about everything, including themselves, emptying the philosophy and history departments of students that went to the front. So I think that's the reality. It's a reality that irritates him. The point, I think, that people try to understand what is Putin's bigger game plan And I think he has this, he just wants to be a spoiler. I mean, sanctions are taking their, sanctions are taking their toll. But he doesn't have any other vision of society to offer. So, you know, hopefully this crisis will be over in six months or seven months. I don't know how it it will end. The unity of the West and, and the United States on this issue it will stand, and it's just been a huge political show. He has put himself into the center, which is exactly what he wanted to be, that I am the big arbiter of international affairs and the fate of the world, as opposed to I am the dictator of an economy that is declining, China is rising, and, you know, soon my GDP is going to have superpower ambitions, but with a GDP the size of Mexico. And also grotesque inequalities. And one of the things that, you know, as you were saying, he's nostalgic for the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union was never socialist, but it pretended to be. And it did have, you know, a creaky cradle to grave welfare state, let's say, that no longer does. But so I'm trying to understand what the attraction would be other than a kind of ultranationalist Russian chauvinism or, you know, we're once again big in the world. But that's not attractive, as you said. And I wonder, is there another aspect to Putin? I mean, one thing is that he must be very gleeful at the collapsing constitutional democracy elsewhere and the rise of these far-right nationalist authoritarians, totalitarians, wannabe totalitarians. But on the other hand, we saw in Kazakhstan a big protest movement last week that was put down. We've seen it in other areas of what used to be called the near abroad does that worry Putin at all, or does he just sort of write them off? You're in Central Asia. Just... Well, it worries them very much. I mean, we just have experienced the events in, in Kazakhstan. You know, Kazakhstan has this image as a poster child of a stable state, authoritarian, sure, but actually it, it's doing quite well, and it delivers relatively good social programs and standard of living for the population. And that all fell apart because, in fact, people began to protest because of the increase in the price of liquefied natural gas, which is used very widely for petrol, but also against appalling living standards. And Nasrbayev was a dictator just like Putin. And, you know, 10 years ago when a group of strikers went on strike, and the company, the state-owned company, dismissed 1,000 of them. They sat in the city square and protested, and the cops shot them. There were 16 people that were killed. So 
In terms of what happened in Kazakhstan, that should be a little bit of a reminder for Putin because people are sick and tired of this highly inegalitarian society where the wealth is 50 to 60 percent of the wealth of the country is concentrated in the hands of 1 percent of the people. So Putin was shaken, I think, by what happened in Kazakhstan. And calm has been restored, but Kazakhstan remains very tense, and that government better start doing some reforms. And these are the kinds of reforms also that Putin has to do, and that is promote the growth of small and medium business, which in Europe provides 60% of GDP and 65% of employment. And that doesn't exist in Russia. And that doesn't exist in Kazakhstan. So you have a lot of very angry young people, especially angry young men that work in the informal economy. And this is an economic model that is doomed to very, very serious problems. I'm glad you brought that up because what we've seen, you know, certainly in the West and in 2019, Before the pandemic hit, you saw worldwide protest movements against austerity, against neoliberalism, for young people who felt that their future had been cut off, that they had done everything right. They had educated, they had gotten, you know, university degrees, but there was no path upward for them. And so what you saw worldwide were these massive protests. And of course, we didn't see it at the same time to the same degree in the former so-called communist countries. And one thing that I'm curious about, given, let's say, the in the U.S. right now, you have more than half of the population thinking capitalism doesn't work and democratic socialism, whatever you want to define it as a kind of left social democracy, sounds really good. And yet it was so discredited, any of those ideas in all of the former Soviet and Eastern Bloc, you haven't really seen the rise of that kind of a left. Recently, I saw you know some statements from the Russian socialist left, young people who are representing that kind of politics. But I just wondered, we used to joke that out of the so-called Marxist Soviet Union, there were no works of Marxism ever produced, after, that it was a terrible society and had nothing to do with socialism. So are these ideas still crushed forever? How do people feel like you say they feel cut off and that they have no future? And you said that Putin doesn't rule with any kind of ideology. So what kind of ideas animate people or, or do they hope for? Well, actually, there is a, a very interesting growing left in Russia and that is uh, smashed just like absolutely everyone else that are focused on social ideas and the importance of social equity, the importance of uh, services, and this sort of thing. So those ideas have not disappeared. They're just not called socialism, if you want. But when you ask people, do you want a national health system? Yes. Well, one of the things that Canadians pride themselves on is that we have a national health care system and the Americans, for some ungodly reason, don't have one and pay seven times more for health than we do because of some sort of ideological constraint that nobody can figure out. The only country in the world, basically, that doesn't do that. And I think that this you, you saw this very, very clearly very quickly in Kazakhstan, where thousands and thousands of people came out. And what they wanted was to address social inequality. Now, this thing went sort of sour because organized 
bands got involved in Almaty and began to trash the city. Mm. And these were organized bands, probably organized by the brother of Nazarbayev, that wanted to discredit a lot of things. So the looting and this sort of thing, uh, some of it was spontaneous, but much of it was organized, especially the trashing of critical government buildings that the average demonstrator couldn't care less where these things are located. So, you know, the ideas of equality, the ideas of justice and all of that, they've never disappeared. If you ask anybody, they favor that. The question is to have a political force that can express this and has a chance of winning. And of course, the dictators do everything conceivable to make sure that that political force never arises. And that's why they're doing it. You just raise your political head in Russia and you're going to get hammered. And one of the things that Putin has learned from the previous thing is don't be nice about these things and allow 15,000 people to demonstrate. Nip it in the bud. And so there is a level of repression which is really, which never existed in the last, you know, for the last many, many, many decades. But that's not an indication of the strength of a regime. When a regime becomes authoritarian, it's not that it's strong, it's that it's very weak. And it's got a short shelf life. Don't forget the Soviet Union lasted only 75 years. And everybody thought that would be eternal. And that's really where I kind of wanted to end that conversation, uh, Bogdan, was to say, where does Putin's strength come from? Other than the fact that he has this control over the body politic, let's say. But, you know, he was still contested in elections and he has to have some base of support. And usually, you know, you would think he has to deliver something in terms of people's standard of living so that there isn't, you know, so that he can keep a quiescent society. Well, I mean, the last elections were not contested. Anybody who even smelt like an oppositionist was prevented from running. So those things are a complete farce. But again, I think to repeat, people sometimes think that if I'm a dictator, I'm strong. Uh, You're not, actually. Strong societies are those that function without the heavy hand. I want to just before we go, there's like two more things that I want to ask you. One, if you were a betting person, would you say there is going to be a war in Ukraine? No, I don't think there's going to be a war. That's basically what I think, too. And then the, the next thing is that I understand that your university has a campus in Kabul in Afghanistan, and you've been going there back and forth even last week. Maybe just, you know, it's switching gears, but could you give our listeners a sense of what you saw in Kabul? We're now what? four months after the uh, end of the war and the U.S. has left and the Taliban's in control? Well, that would be another uh, half an hour. But mm. I think I'll tell you what I saw in Kabul. But when you, when you look about what happened in Afghanistan, it is the most amazing thing is the complete collapse of state authority within 28 or 48 hours. That after $1 trillion worth of expenditure, 20 years in presence, that thing should come crashing down like a deck of cards. It is absolutely stunning. You had phantom armies. You had colossal corruption. You had very little that was done 
to build the foundations of development, the long sustainable foundations of development. Let's look at higher education. Probably the most important thing that happened in 20 years in Afghanistan is that it has the largest educated population that it ever has had in their history. And by the way, the Taliban is going to have to deal with that. If you take all of the foreign assistance that poured into that country, only 1% went to higher education. Although the rhetoric was, we're doing capacity building. And if 53% of students at Herat universities are girls, and 40% of students at Kabul University are girls, that's not your achievement of the West. That's the very big achievement of Afghan societies. Don't forget that the Taliban walked into Kabul. They were waiting for three or four days because they didn't want to occupy the country in that way. It is not that the Taliban won. It is that the complete failure, and I think there's going to be a very long autopsy of this, of of the Western-supported government, had there been a different president other than Ghani, I think the situation would have been different. What you now have in Afghanistan is an absolutely catastrophic economic situation where starvation is around the corner and has started. The Taliban that came in are not the same as the Taliban that were there previously. The previous group were radicalized in madrasas and their black cloaks sitting on these Toyota pickup trucks marched through the country. These are guys that were present on the ground all the time. And there are differences between the two of them, between within the groups. And Afghanistan is anything but homogenous. The north of the country doesn't, they don't like the Taliban. The question, though, is what? How is the Taliban going to confront modernity? They're not doing that. They're doing better than expected. But their absolute misogyny towards women uh, and by the way, they are a complete outlier in the Islamic world in all that. Saudi Arabia has even moved now to giving more, more women's rights. That's something very specific to them. That is an issue. And because these are huge social aspirations of the population. So the Taliban have to be very careful because in large parts of the country, they are not particularly popular. The option, though, is... Either you work to see and try to change the system incrementally, whether that was possible, hopefully that will be possible, that remains to be seen. What would be a catastrophic alternative is the start of another civil war. So Mm -hmm. one of the things, while people are quite opposed, many, many, most of the people I talk to are very opposed, but they said, listen, we've been slaughtering each other for 30 years You know, when I was there, there were only two people that died in an armed conflict. When I was there six months ago, there was 400 a day. Mm. But they have a huge issue. And it will be very interesting to see how they begin to meet Western conditionality. But we remain engaged with uh, Afghanistan. We have educational programs that continue We have in our learning centers, 50, over 50% of our students are girls. 
For us, non-engagement is not an option. Wow. Well, I, it was a bit unfair of me to, to sort of do that segue into a completely different subject, but it's very much on the minds of in American discourse right now because it's seen as a huge debacle for American policy. And that it is. is. That's right. And so I wanted to get your take on it. And also, you know, perhaps we only have a minute or two left, how this fits with the grander political, geopolitical scene with Putin and Russia as well. Well, I mean, of course, Putin is delighted to have this American debacle. And he has tried to have cozy relations with uh, the Taliban. But nobody, there's very little that Russia can do because the economic problem of Afghanistan that has to be solved is of such a magnitude that there's nothing, uh, the Russian economy can't help. The Chinese may be able to help something. But yes, of course, he's gloating over this American defeat. Well, he'll go on and gloat on something else shortly thereafter. Bogdan Kravchenko, thanks for being with us today. Bogdan is the Dean of the Graduate School of Development and the former Director General of the University of Central Asia. And they have campuses in Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, and programs in Afghanistan, as we heard. Bogdan is actually a Ukrainian-Canadian and was the Director of the Institute of Ukrainian Studies at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, and then went off to live in Ukraine after Ukraine became independent and then moved uh, to Central Asia. He's the author of many books as well. So nice to talk to you, Bogdan. And and we're going to stay in touch. Bogdan Kravchenko, thanks so much for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Nice talking to you. Take care. Bye-bye.